Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. And today I'm speaking to you from the office of the Schumacher College at Dargington Hall in southern western England, where they have a college for new economists, and they're having a course on sustainable agriculture, and it's very beautiful. And I'm very happy and thankful to be speaking um, with an incredible entrepreneur from Texas, from Cat Springs, who has brought a product to market from the native flora of her region. And I met her at the Social Venture Network, where she was going to catch that social investment dollar to build her business. Um, welcome. Hello. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Jardy, will you tell about what you're doing and how you got started and where you are in the world? Sure thing. Um, we're at the beginning of reintroducing a delicious beverage back into the marketplace. Um, it's something that grows wild in our part of Texas, and it's a native plant that's caffeinated and it's something that's been overlooked for the past couple centuries as a commercial product, and we found out about it in 2011. So I grew up around this plant, but I didn't know that it was something that you could steep like a tea until very recently. Well, um, so basically you're making dried tea, and you're bagging it, and you're selling it to restaurants for iced tea and for hot tea, and it has a lot of, I'm sure, properties that you'll tell us more about. Um, you want to just t start from the beginning? Like, how did you learn about the tea, and how did you decide to go into business? Um, great. 
Yes, so the drought of 2011 was the worst in Texas history, and we just watched a lot of um, established trees and plants suffer and die, but this plant, Gilpon, just took it all in stride, and so that's when I started to research what was it used for. I mean, it, it's a perfect crop. It's very abundant in this part of Texas, and um, it would be great if there was a use for it. Um, and so that's when I found research by the University of um, Florida and Texas A&M on its properties um, that it's very beneficial for the human body. And then I found a lot of research um, that was really historical eyewitness accounts of Native Americans consuming it as a daily ritual and the explorers who um, were able to experience drinking this tea with them in the mornings. And um, so it was just really interesting that it was something that had fallen out of um, habit in this part of the world. And um, so I... Well, can I interrupt for a second? Because I feel like there's a whole bunch of that um, economic botany that was being studied and the potential of plants were being super um, investigated as part of natural history, as part of inquiry, as part of nation building, as part of Lewis and Clark, as part of botanic gardens and and early naturalists. Mm -hmm. And there was so much exploration of potential uh, economic uses for weed plants especially because, you know, we were like, let's grow the stuff that wants to grow. Right. So I guess the question is where, under what tabs were you looking? Um, I guess you could just look for the species name, huh? Right. And I think that's the most interesting thing about this plant's history is that it's much maligned um, in that early exploration period because it was something that was a potential direct competitor to really expensive imported tea mm-hmm. from Camellia sinensis. And so if you see the scientific name of Yopan, it's Ilex vomitoria, and that's a misnomer. Um, it, it comes from the tea, the Yopan, being used as a base in spiritual purification ceremonies, but it, it itself is not a medic. It was added to something else to, to encourage vomiting or the uh, native groups that drank it needed um, they equated spiritual purity and physical purity. And so it was kind of a scare tactic to discourage new colonists from, from drinking Yopan when it was a viable substitute for really expensive imported tea from Asia and India. Wow. And so, okay, so you discovered that this plant doesn't die. Then you discovered that it's not poisonous and, in fact, is healthy. Then you discovered that you were going to do this. And then um, how did you go about convincing chefs to buy something and serve something completely new? Like, what it was your, what has been your approach? Um, I mean, it's very grassroots. Um, the thing that's just really fantastic about this plant is that it tastes so good. It, it's a really smooth, clean taste, and it tastes like tea. And so it's really selling itself as we make it available and explain the, the benefits and, and this clean, not bitter tea taste. 
and um, the, the local food movement has really embraced it, especially in Austin. Um, and then we have folks who are buying tea for hot or iced tea all across the country through our website and through our Amazon Prime um, storefront. So. And people are then recognizing, I mean, here's a question, like, when people say, oh, tea from here, does it provoke the question like, oh, you know, tea and coffee are both products that are massively related to empire, exploitation of labor, plantations of monocultures of poison, and a small number of companies that dominate the marketplace and extract the majority of the profit from the supply chain. I mean, do people make that connection? Do you talk about that? Or is that just kind of like not even a part of your shtick? It's really not a part of the information that we are putting forward. It definitely is part of the dialogue. Um, it's, it's something that comes up a lot when people are price sensitive to what we're doing because this is a product that is American grown and it's American labor from, you know, <laughs> point one all the way through. And that's something that we're really proud of. It's creating jobs and it's um, making our local economy look different. And uh, that's something that's great because a lot of positions in rural areas are um, are very lacking <laughs> in any kind of. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very limited uh, amount of jobs um, out here in Austin County. So um, it's. It's something that's very interesting to talk to people about because um, the average consumer um, isn't very aware of where their food comes from, much less the economies of scale and um, the unfairness that can be involved in creating their food. So what, in the ideal situation, how does this new food product kind of play out in the marketplace? I mean, I know that with other wild-harvested plants like white sage, um, there's been some drama where there's over-harvesting and there's now conversations about, you know, um, um, what's that maca of the birch called again, chaga, mm -hmm. and, um, and obviously the wild-harvest of uh, ginseng has been a problem, but I don't... I guess I want, my first question is, is it possible to over-harvest yapon? Is that the, is, I mean, yapon, is that the, what is the possibilities and what are the dangers? Right. Um, we've spoken with a lot of sustainability experts um, because it's such a novel situation. Um, it's really, um, it's a plant that's considered to be an invasive native and from the, the historical use of the land, what we're seeing is that what used to be post-oak savanna or open grassland in the deep south was farmed, and then the native grasses were disturbed or displaced. And so this is one of um, the flora that's response was to grow in an area that it hadn't grown before, and so it's invading. And um, so that's really interesting because it's different than something fragile like ginseng that can't be disturbed. Um, 
so that it can continue its growth and not be over-harvested, it's really in a different category because it's something that needs to be um, – manicured is a funny word, um, but, like, uh, <laughs> most people say beat back. Like, please come take it out. And um, it gives us the opportunity for reharvesting um, because it's a very tenacious plant. Um, and so the, the aspects of sustainability that we observe are not um, harvesting during certain nesting seasons and watching out for um, endangered bird species. But as, and, um, as far as taking the plant um, either down to the ground or harvesting higher on the plant by pruning it, it's, it's not something that is um, uh, risky. So that's, that's really been interesting um, because... And what about your business? I mean, you guys are out there, you know, inviting people to try something new mm-hmm. and doing all the market research and figuring out how to dry it probably and how to bag it probably and how to sell it. And then are you worried about another company coming in and just making it cheaper and bigger and what's that? How do yeah, you think, think about that? That's a fantastic question. It's a very real danger for what we're doing because we're pioneering bringing this product to the market and um, somebody bigger, stronger, faster could come in. But um, the thing that we have just really been delighted about, um, my sister and I, as we built this company, is that um, folks really understand the story of the product and the Cat Spring Yopon is a really high-quality product. And... um, and that's going to be our staying power. So wait, wait a minute. We just skipped over something super important, which is this is a sister and sister business. Yeah. Can you talk about um, <laughs> what you guys were doing with your lives? And then, you know, I mean, if my sister came to me and said we're going to sell a shrub as tea, I don't know that it would necessarily convince me to move back to my hometown. So you guys must have very special um, – yeah. how did that go? Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was over a year um, because um, she lived out of state. She was in Washington D.C., and I was sending her samples of what I was doing, and she was interested. Um, she was working. Um, she had worked as a CPA, and then she was working as a community um, liaison for Lululemon and Athletica in D.C., and so. Um, as she was working on her MBA in entrepreneurship, I was working on how to prepare Yopon so that it was really tasty because the plant grows wild where we grew up, but there has been just really loss of how to prepare it. And um, then, so I think that the turning point where she got really interested and was telling me this could be an industry, Genity, we really need to talk about working together and, and making a business out of this because I was just thinking farmers markets and reintroduce the local food um, was that we saw the employment piece um, could be something that was high value and not low value and high overturns and that's something that we both really wanted to be a part of um, to create a better community than um, what we grew up around, and um, this is just a fantastic part of the country, and um, the folks in Cat Spring and surrounding areas really support our workers, 
and we have a production facility outside of Houston and Katy, and it's been really neat to see the community there come around this new product and um, also uh, enhance the lives of the women and men who work with us. And so that is it, almost a triple bottom line business because this is a plant that needs to be harvested and maintained, so it's really beneficial to the local ecosystem here. And then um, being able to change people's lives because of the dignity of work um, is another bottom line. And, of course, we need to do this profitably, so that's our third bottom line. And so if it goes really well and you succeed, what does that look like? That's a great question. This could be something that's popular, like yerba mate, um, not only in its growing region but internationally. And, um, I mean, really the sky's the limit. There's so much available, um, uh, creating a high-quality product is something that um, we're very dedicated to at Cat Spring Yopon, and um, it, it's something that can just continue to gain momentum. The taste is what's driving it, and that's what's exciting. We're not telling people, drink this, it's good for you, and they have to choke it down. <laughs> it's, it's almost a sweet tea. Um, without having to have sweeteners added to it. Well, I think that is a very viable possibility. I mean, you know, this, the, and then, of course, the food culture catches up. Uh, the example that jumps to my mind is that in Louisiana, they still have that beignet chicory coffee thing going on. They got a little fetish for the taste of the coffee substitute that they made well, now, why did they have that? Because of um, embargo and the War of 1812? What's the history? We don't know. I don't know the history. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they started having chicory coffee. Yeah, I mean, it would be um, a delight to see something local really take a foothold and then people be able to experience Texas by drinking Yopon no matter where they are. I think this is a big thing for Texas. I feel like you got to get the Texas Department of Agriculture up on the – I think that actually the Texas Department of Agriculture was one of the first departments of agriculture to do organic certification within their um, ag department when um, Jim Hightower was there. Uh-huh. It might be – he's still there. It would be interesting to talk to him about it. Well, here's another question. So last time I had um, the cranberry people that we met from that same conference, the Uh Salvation Alley. Uh Uh-huh, Salvation Alley. And we were talking about, you know, so here we are, young people starting these food businesses, and how is it going, and what is the relationship that you can have with the investors? What do they need to hear? What are their kind of concerns or uh, attitudes and um, what kind of guidance do you have for other people who are in, putting themselves in the position of a business startup and needing to sing the right song, but also, you know, educate the educate the investors to understand what this kind of a food business will mean? Right. I wish Abby-Ann was on the call, my co-founder and sister, because this is. Um I mean, this is her strength, and, and it's not my wheelhouse. Um, she's just done a really great job um, 
of working with investors who understand the risk of a food business, um, but that want a more sustainable future. Um, and so I think that's something that's really been interesting that we've learned is that it's not a very wide net um, because there's so much education involved on why what we're doing is different. And um, it's, I mean, because we're not building a restaurant. And, um, <laughs> and so we really are looking for a group of um, individuals who want to learn what we're doing and that are excited about all the different ways that doing a business differently could impact the community. And so she could speak so much more detailed to this, um, but I really appreciate the work that she's done um, talking to people about the company and, and finding groups of like-minded people who want to see us um, succeed, want to be part of it. Well, and I mean, my experience, obviously, I come from a nonprofit family. I'm kind of a, like, addicted, clearly addicted to nonprofits. And, um, you know, the, fam the thing about a nonprofit is, or any structure, you're making a family, and it sounds like, at least from the conversation I had with Salvation Alley, that the the relationships that they're making with their investors really want to be more than just a, a money relationship, but also a team relationship where those are people that are going to be looking out for your interests, committed, networking on your behalf, you know, uh, assessing risks on your behalf, you know, scoping the competition, um, watching your back, protecting your reputation, um, finding other skill sets that are needed by the organ, and, and you know, just being uh, good peace workers, good um, holders of holders of the of the light. To put it right. in Quaker terms, <laughs> exactly. And and I love what you're saying about how active a good investor is because um, they're, they're part of the team and it's not kind of um, sitting back and observing a young company grow up. It's, it's being part of it and um, getting their feet wet. I really like the way that you said that. Yeah, and, and the question is, um, are there, is that who is out there or is it not? And, and, and what, how are we making really good relationships within the kind of capital space of our sustainable and regional food movement. Mm -hmm. And how is that relationship reciprocal and respectful and um, adapted to the actual market conditions as opposed to um, trying to apply tech sector type expectations to the very slim margins that we all know about in food. Right. Because, you know, you make the site and then a gazillion people go clickety-clack and you make a margin on each clickety-clack. That's very different from bringing a refrigerated truck for every item. Right. And right. so just trying to translate across contexts between the clickety-clack world and the reefer truck world can sometimes lead us into a, a conflictual situation. But anyway, you don't have to reflect on that. I'm just speaking it aloud because I think it's a big part of the project that we're undertaking here together as a team in discerning and building these regional food businesses 
and the risk taking that's involved and the you know knuckle grease that's involved or what's it called elbow grease that's involved uh is you know does require risk taking capital and patient capital um but that there are many benefits that come not only from what you guys able are able to do with your business but you know, if this does become like the drink of Texas, the national drink of Texas, once it secedes, um, <laughs> that's going to have a whole bunch of more uh, impacts. And that you're, you know, the pioneer part of this is is almost like a social investment. Right. It really is. And I think you touched on something huge: is that it's patience. That this isn't something that couldn't be an overnight success. It's years and years of hard work and um, people coming around to a new flavor. Well, it's hard because, you know, the problems are so big. I mean, we have this with Agrarian Trust. It's like there's 400 million acres of land changing hands in 20 years, and it's like how are you going to scale to address the problem? And we're, you know, and we're, we can't scale. We're, there's no way. You know, that's the national that's the um, that's our public lands right there. That's the BLM. <laughs> that's the Forest Service. You know, they, uh, like we we are not able to, to. The problems are so big, and our solutions must, of necessity, be small, adaptive, related to place, based in relationship, and evolving in those in that context. And so I feel like. It's important as we're all doing this work to be able to really clearly push back against and articulate articulate forward along the lines of, you know, we're working on a solution that's relevant to our context here uh, in this place here. And, and before you go critiquing me for being small and beautiful, you know, maybe it needs to just happen in so many, the, the points of origin for the new system must be profuse. Mm-hmm. Look at me. I'm starting to ministrate again. This is one of my problems when I drink too much tea. <laughs> Do you anything you want to talk about about your tea and how people can get it or if that you want, you need people to work for you or anything about, you know, your guys' needs and thoughts or inspirations? Well, I really appreciate that question. Um, um, for me on the production side of things, I'm always looking for new ideas of um, how to be more efficient in um, making the tea. And there's not a lot of machinery available stateside, um, and honestly, most of the tea is uh, collected internationally, is done by um, hand. And so... Um, it's it's just it's a really interesting engineering problem, and um, I love talking to people who have ideas or p- potential solutions because we're always improving. Um, and um, I I just really appreciate anybody um, reaching out with uh, with their ideas um, because this is a it's it's something that we're stewarding. It's not something that we own, um, and being able to reintroduce Yopan through Cat Spring Yopan is um, it's fantastic because it belongs to everyone um, as an enjoyable product. So, um, Well, or mixing it in with other stuff. I mean, I just occurred to me like, oh, yeah. hey, you know, I've just been drying all these elderflowers and um, linden blossoms and 
and raspberry leaves and all that kind of and yeah maybe we could have interregional herbal mixers right exactly blenders um really love the yopan leaf because um it it marries really well with a lot of different size particles and kind of holds a good structure and then it's so mild that it's a nice body behind whatever um, other ingredients you're using. And so it's not competing in flavor, but really enhancing the beverage. So um, we love for people to experiment with it. We have folks making mead and kombucha um, and, you know, other herbal teas, caffeinated teas, mixed drinks. It's a really fun product to work with. Well, I really thank you for your time, and I'm, I, you, I think probably people will not hesitate to get in touch with you if they're interested. Yeah, please. And I hope that they're interested to get in touch with each other and ourselves and our moms. And, you know, don't get stuck in your email, everybody. Call people. And even if you haven't heard from somebody in a while, like, you know, maybe they fell into a love puddle Maybe they have a heart broke, broken heart. I just had, like, a really nice amount of random people phone calling stuff, and and I was like, this is so old-fashioned. But since we're talking to a Texan, I figured I'd just bring it up. Let's call each other more. That sounds perfect. <laughs> nice talking to you. Thanks for being there. It's great. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing, and I hope the rest of your trip's great. Thank you kindly. All the best to everyone. Bye-bye. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.